0: we could date the beginning of pretty much all modern psychology to around the turn of the 20th century. In 1900, Freud published his Interpretation of Dreams. Slightly before that, William James proposed the James Lang theory, which showed that there is a significant unconscious function to the mind, uh, that the bulk of mental operations are not, in fact, conscious, but are driven by what we could call automatic processes that are not volitional, not in our control. Freud basically postulated that human beings are born with libidinal drives and that we spend a lot of our lives trying to locate ways to discharge these energies for pleasure, catharsis. And for a long time, psychologists diligently tried to make this theory work. It was only until around 1958 when John Bowlby started to propose his radical re-envisioning of the core human drive, which pretty much turned all of modern psychology on its head. Bowlby basically had the audacity to suggest that the core human drive had nothing to do with uh, discharging sexual energy, that it was the impulse to connect, that human beings depend for our core survival on bonding with others. And he didn't just come up with his ideas entirely out of the blue... Uh, Zoologists such as the great Conrad Lorenz had shown with many mammals, including his legendary studies with geese, that all animals are born with an imprinting period where they have the strongest need is not for food or anything other than to develop a core bond with a caregiver that will protect and nurture and essentially show the infants, or provide the holding environment where the infant mammal can learn how to survive on its own. And Bowlby's work wasn't alone in psychology by any means. D.W. Winnicott's legendary work on uh, the false self, the good enough mother, the holding space, the transitional space, and all these ideas boiled down to the key observation along with Bowlby and Ronald Fairburn and so many other object relations psychologists that the way, the manner in which the reliability of our connection with our caregivers determines not just our early emotional uh, viability our early emotional stability but also it plays out over the course of the entire human life and Bowlby led to research by the wonderful Mary Ainsworth who with her grad students developed a famous test of infants at the age of 18 called the strange test and it goes like this you bring a mother and her 18 month old infant into a room with a stranger, generally another woman around the same age as the mother, the mother at one point leaves the room and depending upon how the baby responds to this situation, how quickly it can be soothed, how soon it can bond with the stranger, uh, you learn um, an enormous amount about the quality of that infant's connection with its mother. And over the course of, oh my God, hundreds upon hundreds of studies and longitudinal studies for 40 years of the same individuals, they found that there are four types of attachment that we have. And these types of attachment, with 85% reliability, will be present when we are 18 and continue to guide our lives at 40 So what happens in this crucial bonding period between six months and 24 to 30 months in the human infancy determines essentially the core psychological makeup of not only the child, but the adult human. So if the baby has a secure relationship with its mother, its caregiver, then you will see in the strange test that when the mother leaves the room, the baby will first cry and be very, very dismayed because she is very attached to the mother, but this infant also, she also has an idea that her mother will return and that the mother's disappearance will not last. And so that infant will be easily soothed by the stranger and begin to explore a connection with the stranger, and also begin to explore the room and be interested and curious about this new space. So having a secure bond in life is the core foundation of our entitlement and confidence to explore the world around us. If the child has an anxious unreliable connection with its caregiver. That child will not only be deeply disturbed by the disappearance of its mother but it will not, on the other hand, easily bond or be soothed by the stranger. And while the mother is in the room with the infant, that infant will essentially cling and hover around the mother, because already, even before the mother leaves, the child has a sense that it's not always sure if the mother has its back and will always be available. Now, in anxious attachment, the child, when the mother is there and attentive, feels very, very safe and secure. But the problem is that child cannot predict with any great certainty or find a pattern of when it gets attention and when it doesn't. So it's locked into a kind of hovering attentive, hyper-vigilant, fixated attachment to its mother. It has difficulties exploring the world It expects, as it grows up into adult life, to have abandonment. And it will be often preoccupied with important figures in its life because it doesn't trust that that person will always be there. Insecurity, jealousy hypervigilance are very often lasting emotional results. The secure child, on the other hand, not only grows up to be an individual that feels confident to explore the world, it is trusting in its adult relationships. It finds it easy to balance relationships with life. It finds it easy to state its needs. The anxious child struggles desperately as an adult to state needs in relationships or even set boundaries because it expects that the core relationship that it depends on most may well disconnect if it makes life too complicated for the other in its life. The third kind of connection is the avoidance child. These are children who have Incompatible parents, emotionally incompatible parents, mothers or caregivers who are primarily depressed in grief or in uh, anger constantly, mothers who have either constant anxiety, borderline personality disorders, etc., mothers who are narcissistic, and as well, fathers as well. Fathers can... Uh, be primary caregivers as well. So, these children, when they're 18 months, do not hover around their mother. They are indifferent when the mother leaves the room and rarely will cry. On the other hand, they have no interest in bonding with the stranger either, and very often, rather than exploring the room, will simply go to the single toy that researchers left in the room to play with. It will, in other words, Try to become very self reliant and not depend on anyone. As adults, avoidant people expect emotional engulfment. They find intimacy very difficult to relax into. In fact, relationships are often experienced to be a trap. They seek to have an escape route. And even in relationships, they're constantly, through perhaps these days, Tinder and other devices, monitoring their possible alternatives. Whereas the anxious child grows up to be an adult who's hypervigilant, prone to not only anxiety, but insomnia, eating disorders, and so forth, the avoidant grows up to be an adult who tries to switch off the world, switch off stimuli, disconnect from everything that's happening with other people, we often find a heavy degree of alcoholism in the avoidant population. And finally, we have the fourth category, disorganized, which is a strange name for children who were either abused or whose caregivers suddenly died or were, due to other circumstances, imprisoned or taken away. So the disorganized child um, is uh, very easy to trigger. That child, when the mother seeks to be close to the baby, might freeze suddenly, might literally go into an immobilized state. The child is prone to hiding when any event happens and the child uh, grows up to be an adult that very often is, uh, tends to shut down in, in the midst of intimacy, uh, sexual intimacy and otherwise, refuses to take responsibility for its actions is prone to self-harming, cutting, and other forms of essentially recreating the core wounds of childhood. Tragically, we all have a tendency towards what Freud called repetition compulsion, which is we tend to reproduce the core early circumstances in our adult lives if we were raised by secure, attentive caregivers, then we choose secure, attentive people to be in relationships with. If we have unreliable caregiving, where sometimes the caregiver is loving and available and other times disappears or suddenly rejects or suddenly criticizes or is disinterested, then we will unconsciously choose such individuals for our partners if we grow up in a situation where our parents are always in an emotionally unavailable state of being, then we will often choose partners who are emotionally unavailable, who are essentially constantly trying to get away, disconnect, limit the... uh, responsibility and obligations of a relationship. And, of course, very often, tragically, the children of disorganized attachment grow up to be adults who wind up with, yes, abusive partners. So, it's not really worth it If you're just hearing about attachment theory for the first time, don't try to figure out your attachment style. It's not as easy as it sounds by the wonderful Mary Main, the adult attachment interview, which takes several hours. It's one of the most reliable tests there is. Um, It generally costs a couple of hundred bucks, but it can definitively read out the principal attachment style of an individual, and even secondary attachment styles, because if you have two caregivers, you might well have two attachment styles towards different types of individuals. I grew up in a secure relationship with my mom and a very disorganized relationship with my abusive, drunk father. Go figure. So with I spent a lot of years in therapy learning how to survive in the world of macho guys without needing to resort to copious amounts of drugs and alcohol, which was the solution of my first 30 years of life. And I was also very easily triggered by macho guys. I had an almost radical tendency to get into fights where (laughs) I'd get the shit beaten out of me, simply because I couldn't stand, you know, tough, macho individuals. They reminded me of the father figure that used to do the same thing to myself and my mother. So anyway, thankfully, due to ten years of therapy in adult life, that has been addressed. But there's more implications than just how we act in relationships and whether we feel encouraged to explore life and take risks and embrace new challenges, as if that's not enough the core attachment that we have with caregivers also determines the sub-personalities that make up the human psyche. All human beings don't have single personalities. We have multiple self-states as Pat Ogden and Peter Penagi and so many other psychologists note. So, for instance, I have a different personality, of course, when I'm sitting here talking to you, trying to present ideas in a, I hope, remotely followable manner. Then I have when I'm hanging out with my buddies. Then I have when I'm uh, in some kind of family interaction. Then I have when I'm being interviewed, which has unfortunately happened a lot recently, than I have in other situations. So we each have different subpersonalities. Some that, if you have a job, you might be more buttoned up, more. You might have a sort of a social mask that you wear to go to employment, where you, if somebody asks you how you're doing, you paste on a false smile and you say fine, and you really don't answer the question with any authenticity, because frankly the colleagues at worst of the last person you want to talk to about insomnia or about a difficult family relationship or whatever. So, the formation of subpersonalities is also curated and essentially shaped by early childhood interactions with caregivers. When the caregiver is attentive and kind and protective and encouraging, that child develops a self-state that can relax, can be witty and friendly and open to new opportunities and go with the flow and is capable of acting spontaneously with core friendships and in diff- and in different situations of life. When the parent is emotionally unavailable though present and the child has to really strive to get attention, this is the formation not only of certain personality disorders such as narcissistic and histrionic and uh, antisocial behaviors but also There's also a tendency to develop what Winnicott called false selves, where we become people-pleasers, compliant. We essentially repress the emotions that our parents would disengage and lose interest in us, and we would present a sort of amenable or likable or... um, Uh, A presentation and behaviors that we know, well, will get secure attention or some form of attention. So this, very often, these self-states, these sub-personalities over time, very often in my counseling experience I see, is what turns into the self-states that we rely on for our working lives. Interestingly enough, very few people wind up pursuing their most relaxed, most confident self-state that derives from the time where they were well-bonded in their careers. When under pressure, when we feel we're in a situation where we have to perform like a job interview or in some kind of career-changing environment, people very often rely on... False selves, performing uh, inauthentic displays, wearing social masks, becoming self-reliant, trying to be people-pleasing, not asking for help, and so forth. And these, if you know anything about internal family systems therapies, this turns into our managers—the sort of the sort of striving qualities are subpersonalities that dominate a lot of human life that where we just want to survive and get through the day we don't really believe we can relax and be spontaneous and say whatever we feel and be creative fortunately for me i quit my job that re- required my false self and i decided fuck it I'm going to work for pennies and be a Buddhist teacher and counselor, and now I get to actually uh, live out the creative, spontaneous, relaxed... I actually love every moment of what I do, so it is possible to switch, but we have to, of course, be brave, because unfortunately, under capitalism, a lot of the jobs that are available require being in some manner or shape uh, political, presentable, trying to act as if you give a shit what <laughs> what people above you in the food chain think. I only work with people that I care about, so I actually do give a shit what those people say, but I never did when I was working in advertising. It just sounded like these dreary dronings going on in the background. And, of course, we also have those sub-personalities when our parents were scary, overbearing, deeply depressed, for some reason unstable, such as drunk or other emotionally uh, diminished uh, conditions. And those turn into the parts of our personality where we want to simply shut down remove all awareness, disconnect from the world, essentially self-numb. And from a lot of my childhood, I certainly had that sort of personality that whenever I would have to do anything in large social gatherings, I would rely on substances. And uh, fortunately, I've been sober for 23 years, but it did govern about 19 years of my life. So... There's been about 50 years of research into what creates the secure bond, the secure base that we need to feel if we are to be confident to thrive in relationships to be willing to explore and open up to new possibilities, to try to take on new uh, skills, to feel that we can uh, essentially bond with new people and so forth and so on. And I'm basing this, these four bullets on the work of Heinz Kohut, Rudolf Schaefer, Peggy Emerson, Alan Shore, the great Mary Main, Peter Fonagy, Diane Fosha, Sue Johnson, and Dan Brown, these are all the most established psychologists in attachment. And if you look at the essentially the meta-analysis of over 200 studies, we keep seeing the same qualities that an infant needs to feel, an adult needs to feel, to be a thriving entity in the adult universe. The first is the child needed to feel secure and protected. It needed an environment where it sensed that while it was with the caregiver, very little could happen to it, that it was safe. And as an adult, we need to feel that there's a place we can go to where someone or some group will be there where whatever is going on in our life we will at least be able to, or if we're sick, there'll be someone there to take care of us. If we are vulnerable due to some overwhelming emotional state, there will be attention. The second is the feeling of being seen. Being seen by the other is the strongest component of attachment. From the time we are one month old The very first sensory capabilities we develop as children is not to represent the world around us or to spot food at all. What the child develops around one to two months of age is the ability to spot another human face, to make out the eyes of another human face, and to see if the eyes are attuned to it. So our earliest programming is looking for the sense that we are seen We are understood. And in some way, by the reliability, we are valued. That we are taken care of in the sense that someone is dedicating their attention to us and is aware of our emotional states. The third quality is being comforted and soothed when we're upset or angry. That feeling that If we become deeply emotionally activated, that someone will take the time to soothe us. And the fourth quality is being encouraged. Someone that supports, models, and approves of us when we take risks. That doesn't judge us, but instead applauds our efforts to grow. So again, those four qualities we see over and over again is the sense of being, having a secure place that we can go to, where there's someone there who will take care of us when we're sick or injured or in any way exhausted or just overwhelmed. Two, the quality that someone will take their time to observe us, to listen and take in our emotions and understand how we're feeling. Three, if they see that we are agitated, distressed, emotionally poorly balanced, that they will take the time to soothe us, and we'll know how to do that. We'll know how to placate. And four, someone who encourages us, who applauds our risk-taking, our exploration, who wants to... Provide that sense of uh, companionship and um, modeling that shows we can go into the world with confidence. Finding a secure base, even if it wasn't established in childhood, can be done in adult life. And Mary Main, who developed the, the uh, adult attachment interview, has shown that it can be done Often, she says, by rule of thumb, it takes five years of some kind of one-on-one therapy, counseling, mentoring, or just in the course, if you wind up in a relationship, if you're not secure, if you wind up in a relationship with someone who is secure for seven to ten years, that too will begin to shift your attachment and your reliance on uh, self-reliance, Subpersonalities. We can find it in teachers, mentors, support groups, with sponsors. We can find it in all kinds of therapeutic modalities. We can find it, uh, again, in relationships. Furthermore, today, there's even been studies that show us what we can expect to see in an adult who's got a secure base in life. If you have a secure base, one, you will have an accurate sense of your capabilities. You will not take on projects grandiosely that you can't fulfill, nor will you short yourself or slight yourself and be uh, lacking in confidence to take on new uh, challenges. Two, you will recognize that your mind is subjective and you will be aware when your reactions are based on earlier life events rather than the actions of someone presently around you. So, for instance, if somebody's had some rejections in their adult life but has a basically somewhat of a secure base, they will immediately know if they respond to a breakup with a disproportionate amount of sadness, they will know that that sadness or grief or anger is not due to their current partner, but is actually due to other life experiences. Three, individuals with a secure base are far more resilient. They can bounce back and see new opportunities when old challenges don't work out, And they can see the bigger perspective when businesses or other opportunities fail through. They can, in other words, be in touch with all the other positive events in their life. They don't become overly fixated. On the other hand, anxious or avoidant individuals after setbacks tend to have very little resilience. They tend to, for a long time, live in a psyche that is both other or self-blaming, but they don't have any faith or any ability to see a bigger picture. And four, this person understands their interdependence with other people. They do not prioritize self-reliance. They understand that human beings need other human beings for emotional co regulation They have a good balance in their life. They're willing to be alone, but they're also never underestimating the value of authentic emotional connections, where they reveal what they're experiencing without any sugarcoating or without any social mask. So, fortunately, another way we can develop a secure base is as a some new researchers have shown, such as uh, Fanaghi, Dan Siegel, and Dan Brown, that it also can be developed in insight meditation. So, in insight meditation, what we're doing is we are developing a secure base for all of our internal experience to be greeted with. Your awareness becomes the good enough, secure mother that greets all of your emotions and feelings and body sensations and even your thoughts with kindness, non-judgmentalism, with a sense of being seen and understood, with an ability to soothe and relax the body when we become distressed, and also with a sense of appreciation So all of the qualities that the Buddha talked about in the Brahma-viharas, appreciation, kindness, non-judgment, are all the exact qualities that we need to develop a secure base. And that's why I propose so over 2,500 years, Buddhist practices have been so central for so many people's healing and recovery. So, why not give it a shot? (laughs) All right, so closing the eyes, or if you don't feel comfortable doing that, just look at the ground in front of you. So, at this point, see if you can establish a settled mind in the opening portion of the meditation by keeping in mind the sensation that's ongoing in the present. That could be, of course, the sounds of the room, or it could be the... Ambient sensations in your body. It could be light flickering behind closed eyelids. It could also be the sensation of the breath. If you do like to work with the breath, a three-point breath is a really excellent way to develop a sense of ease. A three-point breath is very simple, locating an area in the abdomen where you feel a sort of movement as you inhale. You might feel a slight expansion, and then continue that expansion in the belly like it's a balloon, and then even inflating the chest at the completion of the in-breath. Hold, and then as you breathe out, first release the breath energy in the chest and then down through the abdomen. So inhalation is this expansion and upward movement and exhalation is a a, uh, deflation and a uh, release of energy. Try not to push out the breath and try not to pull in the inhalation, just try to receive the inhalation and then release the out-breath. So there's very little um, commandeering of the breath. You're allowing the breath to happen and just gently encouraging the sensations in the abdomen and chest to be more articulated If you find it difficult to stay with the breath, just count inhalations and exhalations as well. So that would be, as you breathe in, think one. As you breathe out, think two. As you breathe in, think three. As you breathe out, think four. As you breathe in, think five. As you breathe in, breathe out, excuse me, then count down to four. So you're counting up from one to five, and then down, with one, three, and five always on in-breaths. If you have a tendency of your mind to drift away, try not to be in any way frustrated, impatient, or judgmental. Every time your mind drifts away, it's an opportunity to experience a small form of awakening. Every time you awaken from the virtual reality of a thought, you are, in essence, experiencing a small version of the Buddha's enlightenment. So at this point, I'd like you to bring to mind an image of yourself in your mind's eye. It doesn't have to be an accurate one, but from a time in your life when you were younger and needed support and... kindness perhaps at a time where you yearned for reliability and support from a caregiver or from a romantic partner but it wasn't always as available just a sense of emotional kindness, and support that we all deserve was not present, or at least not as much as we needed. So this could be an image of yourself when you were an infant, a child, a teenager, in college, any time of your life when you... Yearn for someone to connect with in a deeper, soothing way. And just see an image, whatever image of yourself that reflects this period, it doesn't have to be accurate. It could be based on a photo of yourself you've seen or just a construction in your mind. But just see this younger, vulnerable, perhaps overwhelmed or lonely, just needing some form of compassion and kindness and see if you can feel, empathize with that part of your experience, feeling some of the feelings of yearning for love and care. And now bring to mind an individual that you most associate with being protected and cared for and secure, someone who at some point was willing to prioritize your well-being And see if now you can begin to feel that sense of being protected. Or if you could just reflect on any time you've known that sense of being protected, safe, with someone. If you can't think of a time, just try to think of the time in your life you've had any feeling of just security, safety. See if you can find that feeling in your body How do you know when you feel secure and safe? Is it a feeling in the chest or abdomen that's soft or the chest is open or is the face relaxed, the muscles in the throat soft? Or how do you know what does that feel like to be protected And can you slightly deepen that feeling? And now think of someone who always seems to as it were get you who understands you who knows when you're being sarcastic when you need someone to listen someone who who feels capable of understanding even the most difficult impulses we have who doesn't run from our anger or our disappointment or stress or anxiety it doesn't have to be someone who's always done it but someone who you associate with that quality and then see if you can feel what it feels like to have someone available who understands you. Very often that's a feeling in the face, knowing we can express any emotion through smiles or frowns or tears or any other expression. How does it feel to be seen and understood. Can you bring to mind someone or some group that soothes you when you are sad or distressed or lonely or unhappy? Who would you most like to call or connect with in that state? And then see if you can find that quality as well, that sense that we could lean into someone, that we could rely on someone. Can you find just some inkling or sense of that? And, finally, who is your most reliable cheerleader? The person who is most likely to express encouragement and support and confidence in you. see if you can locate that feeling. What does it feel like when we know there's someone pushing us on, approving and supporting us when we try something new? Who would we want on our team? knowing these four qualities or having any sense of them being cared about and protected being seen, emotionally understood having someone who will soothe us and having someone who will support and encourage us as we try and explore the world, and take on new skills. Can you develop these qualities towards your own experience? Just for the next few minutes, see if you can cultivate some of those qualities in your attention, curiosity, care, encouragement, Soothing the body and the breath if you feel agitated. Understanding and being willing to sympathize with any emotion or feeling that arises. And the sense of protecting yourself. Being your fiercest protector and advocate. So I'm going to, in a moment, ask that you open your eyes, but when you do so, see if you can first look at the ground in front of you, just take in light and color, and see if you can bring with you into the rest of your evening this unconditional quality of non-judgmentalism, of kindness care, interest, encouragement. If you develop this, these qualities of a secure base towards your own experience, you will also start developing these qualities in your relationships with others. So when you're ready, you can open your eyes.